Hi, everybody. Turn to Ephesians 4. We'll spend the next little bit walking through some different things. Again, the text on a deeper level, digging into the grammar, everybody's favorite thing. We're going to talk a lot tonight about prepositional phrases. So aren't you glad you came out? Yeah. Man, when you thought about becoming a Christian, you thought, man, I really hope they talk about prepositional phrases. Um, well, I, I'm here to deliver. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll take questions about this text, about whatever. Happy to, to do that. So Ephesians 4, 7 to 16, this, this very important truth about unity, because remember, first half of the book is all about union with Christ and the unity with Christians that he creates. Uh, the back half of chapter 2, the Jew-Gentile unity. And now the rest of the letter, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are about how to live out that unity. What does that look like in very practical ways? And this, this passage, I'll be honest with you, um, is a weird one to view through the lens of unity, uh, that, that a diversity of gifts is actually what promotes our unity together. It, it's helpful, though, because unity can be viewed as this nameless, faceless, homogenous group of people in, it's, a, it's a false understanding of unity, but that's how people view it. Unity itself embraces diversity. It's not uniformity. Those are different things where we look alike, dress alike, talk alike. That's not unity. Unity implies all of the differentness, all of the diverse things coming together, united in something more important than all of those diverse things. So, when you start talking about unity, people tend to ask or at least think through, what about the role of the individual? You know, does individualism get canceled in the name of unity? Well, he settles this issue of diversity by talking about the fact that the Lord Jesus sovereignly gives gifts to his people, a diverse kind of gift with diverse measures of those gifts so that in that diversity, they can create and keep this unity. So let's walk through um, the, the text of so 7 to 16. Uh, in the original language, is two sentences. Uh, verse 7, 8, 9, and 10 are one sentence, and 11 through 16 is another sentence. Um, so, and, and so that's how I've divided the text. Point one is the first sentence. Point two is the second sentence. Um, you're coming at these complementary uh, truths that first that Jesus gives gifts. I mean, that's just the general point. Jesus Christ has granted gifts to his people to help them keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Chapter four, verse three. Uh, one scholar wrote, the purpose of this varied distribution is not to differentiate the individual but for each to contribute to the overall unity and growth of the body. So dealing with our diverse gifts and the diverse measure of those gifts is not a way for Paul to highlight, you are a divine snowflake. You're unique. There's no one like you. You are such a unique creation and you need to live out your uniqueness. That is not what Paul is doing. He's simply saying, you have a gift, 
so that you can contribute to unity. That's the whole point. So don't take away from this, oh, I'm, I'm unique and that, yeah, you're unique like everybody else. So that, that, that's not what we're caring about. What we're caring about is the unity that it contributes to. So we don't use this to justify an individualistic faith, which you will hear me hammer on multiple times because uh, Paul comes at this from multiple angles. Uh, so to each one, he says, verse 7, to each individual, grace is given. Again, grace being understood as gifts. Um, grace, charis, gift, charisma, which comes into English as charisma. It's the same word. So if someone has a charismatic personality, you're kind of referring to a gifted outgoingness of their personality. This is why charismatics are called charismatics, uh, because they believe in the miraculous gifts, the charismata. So they're the charismatics. Uh, so you know, when you talk about going to a charismatic church, um, you're, you're using a Greek word when you say that. So we know that grace equals gifts. You know, Paul said it in Romans 12, uh, verse 6, we all have these gifts according to the grace given to us. Uh, so that they're kind of interchangeable here. Um, to each one, grace was given. Was given is known as a divine passive, meaning God did this. You didn't do this. God is the one who has granted these gifts according to the measure of Christ's gift. The word measure is used three times throughout the text, and it's, it's really, the, you know, what's repeated is important. Measure is repeated. It's the Greek word metron, where we get the idea of meter, metered out. Uh, so that's, that's the, the concept that he's given. It's been, it's been granted out in different amounts to his people. And again, I highlighted it this morning, and it, it is so critically important, not just that Jesus gives you gifts, but he decides how much of it you get. So you don't get to complain that you're only gifted so much and someone else outgifts you. Um, they're not better than you. Christ decided this is how much of the gift you get. This is how much of the gift they get. Uh, so there's no competition. There's no jealousy. There's no sense in which, hey, that part's more important than this part. We drop all of that nonsense um, because it, it's just a means of competition that we spiritualize and we use this great concept as a means of dividing. Well, the purpose of the gifts is to bring unity, not the division that we would bring to it, which is the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 12. What would the body do if it were just an eye? Where would the sense of hearing be? Uh, what if it was just an ear? Where would the sense of smell be? Uh, you know, no part of the body, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, because it does. Um, and, and the hand needs the eye. They, they coordinate. It's called hand-eye coordination. Every part is needed by the other ones. Uh, so I don't know what gifts you have or how you're using them or what measure of gift you have. We can talk about that later with the questions if you'd like. Um, the, the purpose of it, no matter what gifts you have or what amounts you have, the purpose behind it is to contribute to the unity of the body. That's why he's given it to you. Uh, put it to use and it unifies God's people. 
Then 8, 9, and 10, they're just weird verses, aren't they? Uh, you've read Ephesians before, and as you read through Ephesians 4, when you read these verses, you stopped and you thought, those are weird verses. But w- they, they don't seem to fit what's going on there. Uh, and most scholars would agree with you. <laughs> they don't seem to fit what's going on there. And they, they spill much ink over verses 8, 9, and 10. And, and it doesn't help that he quotes Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is, and I quote, textually and exegetically the most difficult and obscure of all the Psalms. It is the most challenging Psalm to interpret and understand. And that's the one that Paul chooses to quote here. So that's, that's making it worse. Like, why are you talking about this? And why would you use that of all the verses to, to make your point? And really, the Old Testament scholars, I mean, they look at Psalm 68 and and they're trying to figure out what is going on in Psalm 68 and why now would Paul use it? And really, we don't know. Paul knows. He knows fully why he used Psalm 68. And when you get to heaven, ask him, put it on your list. I have several uh, of things I'd like to ask him or confront him over, point my finger at him about. Uh, why he said that and how he wrote that. Um, yeah, why did you make Romans 9, 10, and 11 so stinking confusing? Uh, why did you do that? Even Peter says, I'm going to call Peter over. Like, even Peter said, your stuff is confusing. And that made it in the Bible. Uh, so we're, we're going to talk about that. And he's going to explain it all. And we're all going to go, oh, now I get it. So this, this would be the question to ask. Why pick Psalm 68? Again, it's a psalm of victory. God, Yahweh, God, ascends to heaven as the victor over his enemies. And as he does so, he, he passes out the spoils of war to his people. It's what King David does. So he wins a battle. It's not for his own personal glory. What he wins in that battle is for the benefit of Israel. Uh, so all the wealth that they would capture, the servants they would capture, the food they would capture, all the stuff that they would get in the victory of that war, that gets dispersed to to all of Israel. That's the whole point. Well, Paul takes that psalm and says, this is what Jesus has done. Uh, when, when he ascended on high, he, he passed out the spoils of war. But we get all these incredible gifts. Isn't he gracious and kind? And again, then he goes off into quite literally a parenthetical note. Um, well, if he ascended, well, that automatically implies he descended. Uh, so he, he descended down. What does that mean? with these captives. Uh, Who are the captives? It's the enemies of the faith. Paul already listed them in Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3. Uh, The world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, Those are the captives. Those are the ones that he has beaten. Uh, Those are the ones who have lost. But okay, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. What does that mean? And scholars go, we don't know, but we'll take a guess. And they then write a book about it. So they like to debate, where did he go? There are three primary views. View number one is that uh, when Christ descended into the lower parts of the earth, that meant he descended into the underworld after his death. And when Jesus died, you've, you've heard the old uh, idea, you know, when Jesus died, he went to hell. It's weird how people just throw that out with no clarification. Um, 
First of all, no, he didn't. Uh, that's, that's not what that means. It's, it's, it comes from one of the versions of the Apostles' Creed, which the Apostles did not write. So the Apostles did not believe that. Uh, it is one way to interpret uh, what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, uh, that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. Uh, but when you say Jesus went to hell, that has some implications. If you just throw that out there, like, why did Jesus have to go to hell? Like, don't unbelievers go to hell? And like, punishment? Did Jesus go into fiery torment for three days? A while before his resurrection? No. All it means is he went to the place of death, the grave. Uh, so he was in the place of death for the time period between his crucifixion and his resurrection. So that's, that's the first view, most notably held by John Calvin, uh, that he, Jesus went into the underworlds. The, the second view is that Christ descended in his incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. God put on flesh, incarnation, um, and came as a human being. That's the view that I hold. That's the view that I preached this morning, that Jesus came to the earth by his work there on the cross and by his resurrection. He has defeated all of the enemies. Um, the third view is that Christ descended at Pentecost and gave gifts to the apostles in Acts 2. That that's what he means when he ascended and, and, and gave all these gifts. I, I don't think there's a lot of justification for that. Um, so I, I think it's best to, to view it as he came to the earth and then he ascended uh, back into heaven. And as he did so, he grants gifts as the victor who can now do that because he won. He rose from the dead. And he does all of this so that he can fill all things. The end of verse 10. And that's a phrase that implies a control of these things by the exercise of his sovereignty. He's filling all things because he's in charge of all things. Uh, he, he is continuing to show, not just by the giving of the gifts because they're his to give, but by his filling of his people through them, he is in charge of his people. He's in charge of even the gifts they have and how much they have and how they're going to use them. He controls all of it. But again, the purpose of the gifts, that's the primary point to take away here. The purpose of the gifts, the purpose of the diversity of them is to contribute to the unity of the body. Everything comes back to that. It's all about the unity of God's people. So let's go to the, the second sentence, 11 to 16. Um, you get verse 11, the, these five positions, apostles, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Uh, really, it's four positions because pastor-teacher is one position. Uh, the, the way that it's phrased, they, they go together. So it's like pastor-slash-teacher. Um, so it's the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and the pastor-teacher. So these gifts aren't gifts made to people. They are gifts of people to the church. The people themselves are the gifts uh, for the sake of God's people. They have a particular role in the church to play. Uh, so church leaders are not exempt from all the other teaching about spiritual gifts and their role. Um, to take the gifts that the Lord has given to them and serve just like everybody else serves. They're not, again, in some higher spiritual category. That's not the point. The point's unity. But by their position that the Lord calls them into, uh, they do have a particular role to fill. This is not Paul establishing the five-fold grid 
of all churches have to have these five things. Um, and, and I could point you to book after book after book made popular in uh, modern church world today uh, by a, a church leader named Alan Hirsch, uh, who writes about multiplying movements and church world, and he's quite odd and writes some weird things. But this is one of the things that he has held to and has made it popular uh, today that, 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 that what the church is missing are apostles. The church is missing are, are prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Um, huge mistake. We don't have apostles. Uh, those died off a long time ago. Um, we, you, you could make a small case, small case, for the gift of apostleship. Not the position of apostle. That's gone. Because it's an authoritative position. When apostles spoke, it was scriptural. Nobody has that position today. Nobody gets to claim that, including the Pope, though he does. Nobody gets to claim that, that when I speak, I'm speaking the very revelation of God, that that's dead and gone um, as solidified in the New Testament scriptures. This is the, the only word of God that we need. It is all sufficient, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So um, we, we don't have that. We don't have prophets. Prophets aren't just an Old Testament thing. Prophets are a New Testament thing. Uh, the New Testament church had prophets. Read 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, the gift of prophecy is certainly profound and well-known, and is set in contrast to the, the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. And what Paul says, if you're going to strive for a gift, don't strive for tongues, strive for prophecy, because that, that impacts everybody. It, it, that benefits everybody in the church. Um, because they didn't have the New Testament scriptures, God gifted to the church those who could hear from God and communicate God's word to them. Um, we don't have that now. We don't need that now because we have a completed New Testament. Uh, so the purpose of that gift is gone. Uh, so again, this is why you hear me <laughs> rail on it uh, over and over and over again. You know, if someone says to you, God said to me, what comes out of their mouth next best be scripture. If not, ignore what they have to say, because that's not authoritative. Uh, only the scripture is authoritative. Uh, so that's the danger of saying we need, uh, we need apostles and prophets uh, today. No, those were unique roles in the life of the first century church uh, that the, the need for them, the purpose for them was removed uh, when we received the completed New Testament. God's revelation is final and complete. Uh, so we don't need an extra word from God. Uh, you already have all the words you'll ever need. Um, and really, if you're going to make the case that you, you need an extra word from God, then you better be able to quote all of his current words to you before you say you need a new one. Uh, so until you can do that, good luck. Um, we're, just, we're just not going to hold to those views. So you can make a, a case, though, for the gift of apostleship of the sent ones. So think missionary those who are sent into uh, these other regions on behalf of the Lord, on behalf of a church, you could make that case. I would hesitate to use the word apostle to describe that gift just because, again, words matter. Uh, it, it could be confusing. Um, you, you could certainly make a case for the gift of prophecy. Uh, I would argue that if you do that, um, that's what preachers are, who are standing up and saying, thus saith the Lord. Not because I'm making that up, but because I'm standing on the authority of this book and laying it out. So uh, again, if you look at prophet, the, the original word, fe is the verb, pro-fe, 
Uh, Fe simply means to speak. Pro means in front of. So those who speak in front, those who speak on behalf of. Uh, So if you're going to make the case for the gift, you could. Again, words matter, so I wouldn't call it prophet uh, or anything along those lines because that miscommunicates. Um, And with the modern charismatic uh, abuses of some of these things, it's going to make it hard to be really clear uh, with with those things. So uh, he's not making the argument, everybody, every church needs these five, um, nor is he making the argument, we need to really care about what, what are all the differences between this one and that one and this position and that position. Um, again, a lot of people have a whole lot of opinions about all of that. The focus of the text is unity. So what if we focused on the unity of the five or the four, if you want to view it that way? Um, the, the word work that is involved in all of the positions uh, of church leaders, their job is the, the proclamation and the application of God's word into the lives of God's people. That's what church leaders do. We don't form strategic plans, though at times those are necessary. Uh, we don't sit and spend six months out of the year um, fine-tuning a budget, though that's necessary. Uh, to make sure that those things are healthy and in line. The primary role of church leaders is to bring God's word to bear on your life. That's the whole point. And everything in the church flows from that reality. Uh, So these five are to serve, again, this is what church leaders are for, to serve as an example of using gifts for the benefit of God's people. That's what everybody should do. They take their gifts, whatever the Lord's given to them, whatever position they happen to hold, and use those gifts for the benefit of God's people. So you are, Hebrews 13, to look to your leaders as the example to follow. This is why. Because they're to be doing what you are to be doing. Anchoring in Scripture and guiding your life by its truths. Verse 12 shows the purpose of that. This is what it accomplishes in the life of the church. And to do so, Paul will give a combination of three prepositional phrases. See, told you we were going to get there. So exciting. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, there's the first one. For the work of service, there's the second one. To the building up of the body of Christ, there's the third one. This is what that word work by church leaders will accomplish in the life of the church. For the equipping of the saints, That is the primary application. The other two are secondary to it. Here's how we know that. They're different prepositions. So even in the language itself, the first one is set apart from the second one and the third one. The first one, for the equipping of the saints, begins with the preposition pros, towards, towards the work of service. To the building up of the body, uh, for the work of service, to the building up of the body, those begin with the preposition ace, E-I-S, which would literally translate as into. Uh, So again, those go together. So this is what, why God has designed the church the way that he's designed it so that it's for the equipping of the saints, which is for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, which tells us the word work that leaders do equip you 
to do two things. The work of service. The word service is the Greek word deacon, where we get the idea of a deacon. Uh, All it means is servant. That's all it is. To the building up of the body of Christ. And those two are linked together. So when God's people serve, it builds up the body. When God's people don't serve, the body is not built up. Those two things go hand in hand. Uh, those, those matter. And the second and third one uh, transition away from the reference to church leaders, and then it brings it to bear to church members. Um, we dare not look at this text as a text about church leadership. It's just the one verse that's about church leaders. Everything else is about everybody. So don't focus on, this is, a, this is a leadership passage. No, it's not. They get one verse of this is what you do because here's all the other stuff that comes from it. This is a- applicable to absolutely everyone. So the leader's job is to equip everybody, the people in their care, through the ministry of the word, so that they would be equipped and serve. And that accomplishes this growth to maturity in the body of Christ. Um, when he talks about the word equip, the saints will be equipped for the, the work of service. The, the word that he uses for equipped is used elsewhere. Uh, it's used in Luke 6.40 to refer to the fully trained teacher. Uh, when a teacher is fully trained, they get to kind of take over. And it's used in, by Timothy about Scripture would that it's the word that would thoroughly equip you for every good work. It's the same word, which tells us it's the word work of the leaders that equips people. It's not me helping you find a volunteer position, though that's important, and we do that. It's not me helping you discover your spiritual gifts, though that's important, and we do that. The overarching means by which that happens is the work of the word that equips you to serve the in whatever way the Lord wants you to serve. Because now through that knowledge of the scripture, you know what you're doing. You know what you're talking about. You know what the Lord wants from you. And all of that leads to, again, the building up of the body. Paul already used that word in chapter two, verse 21, to talk about the the, the body coming together, the Jew and Gentile coming together as one man. Uh, It's one of those words that's uh, built on the Greek word for house. It's a construction word. And the building up happens by the unified effort of a unified people who are using their diverse gifts to serve one another. That's how unity is actually accomplished in the church. Verse 13, until. So this is all going to happen until. He's going to keep doing this until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Um full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Again, attain means to arrive at a destination. Uh, You're on a journey and you get there. That's the whole point. And then there are some prepositions. Three of them in particular, uh, all of them beginning with the same preposition. So they're all All three of them are to be understood as three different aspects of the same destination. So they don't build on one another. They are the same. So it's the unity of the faith, of the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. 
It's the same, he's, he's repeating the same thing for emphasis uh, because he wants you to see this is what it looks like when there is a unity of the faith. Um, again, the faith, not your faith, the faith, the objective body of truth of Scripture. And we looked at that last Sunday as well. That is very uh, important. In fact, he even uses the same word for unity that he did in chapter 4, verse 3, um, to talk about keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Well, this is how you do that. You agree theologically with one another. You grow up in your faith. So uh, he, he walks through what, what this looks like, um, full knowledge of the Son of God. Um, I, I'm sure it's been the case for you as you have studied and grown in your Christian life. Some of you have been Christians for decades. Do you know everything you need to know about the Lord Jesus? No, you don't. I mean, how could you, right? We, we have eternity to, to grow and to learn and to increase in this knowledge. Um, but no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've read, no matter how many Bible studies you've been to, you're still just scratching the surface. That's how great God is. That, that's the depth of the knowledge of Christ. You're just scratching the surface. Um, some of you know this. It, it's one of those things that you, know, you say when you're young, you look back, you go, man, I was so stupid. Um, I, in college, I was serving in student ministry, worked with middle school students and had a ball. Um, I don't think I would now. God bless John uh, and all of those volunteers. Uh, but, th- but that's what I did and knew that the Lord was, was calling me to preach. And um, I, didn't, I didn't like that. Some people still don't. I didn't like that because um, I really enjoyed doing student ministry. But there was enough internal burning and pressure and pushing uh, that I could sense. And there was enough outward signs of, of people saying, hey, you should. Have you thought about this? That's one of the ways you know God's leading you to something. Everybody's telling you independently of one another, you should do that. It's like some divine conspiracy that they all got together and somebody sent an email and, hey, let's all tell him this. Um, and he won't know what to do with it. It'll really freak him out. Uh, that's what was happening. All, all of the, hey, you should preach, you should preach, you should preach. So finally, I began to consider that, and um, I made these stupid reasons as to why I shouldn't and couldn't. And one of them I said was, you know, if the president has to be 35, I think preachers ought to have to be 35. <laughs> and at that time, 35 was ancient. It's like, I'll never get there. Uh, so it won't be a problem. And, you know, now eight years after that fact, it's like, Oh, 35 was pretty great. Uh, that would be nice to, to go back to. Um, so that, that was one of them. Here was the other one. And just think how stupid this is. Here's what I said. The Bible's only so big. You can only, you can only preach so many sermons out of it. That's not good job security. So what happens when, you've, when you're done preaching the whole thing? Do you just start over again? That's dumb. So I'm not going to go be a preacher. What? <laughs> uh, so uh, I have averaged now 47 Sundays a year for 22 and a half years. 21 and a half. 21 and a half years. February will be 22. Just scratching the surface. Barely scratching the surface. There is 
so much more that we could learn and know about him. So the goal is the full knowledge of the Son of God. Well, no matter where you're at on that spiritual growth journey, you got a long way to go. Full knowledge of him. The second, to a mature man. Again, mature means desti- destination, end goal, end result. Again, it's used sometimes in the New Testament. It's translated as perfect. Uh, Jesus does that in Matthew 5. Um, Paul will use it, 1 Corinthians 2, Colossians 1, to this sense of maturity. Uh, Colossians 1, you know, we, we do this to present all people perfect in Christ. Well, what does he mean when he says perfect? It means mature, complete in Christ. Um, so again, it is the sense of unity because mature man, man is singular. That itself points to the unity of the body because as the, the Bible figures out a metaphor for all of us together, the metaphor is singular. We are one body. We are one man. We're a person that's, that's growing into maturity to a mature man. And I'll make a point about that, the fact that man is singular in a minute um, that couldn't include it in a sermon because it's conjecture, um, but that's what Sunday nights are for. We can talk about all the heretical stuff. So it's fun. So this, again, mature man showing this corporate together maturity, not individual Christians in the midst of it all. But together we are one. And that has implications we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, in fact, one, one scholar said, a sign of immaturity is the disunity of the body. You want to talk about what it means to be mature as a Christian? It means to be in unity with Christians. And if you're not, you're not mature, no matter how mature you think you are. Unity is maturity. Maturity is unity. Um, so again, we'll talk about that in a minute. Again, and here's the, the final prepositional phrase, to the full stature, the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Uh, stature is used in Luke 19 to refer to physical stature. So size, person, growth, manhood. Uh, so it's, it's all building this picture of you are growing up to be a mature adult. Together, we are all growing up to be a mature adult. Um, it, and that adult looks like Christ. He's the goal. That's, this is the end result. You know, when you have a, a jigsaw puzzle, um, you, the only way you can put it together is you look at the picture on the box. So we've got all the pieces that come together. Jesus is the picture on the box. This is what we're supposed to look like. Uh, this is how we're supposed to function. This is how we're supposed to act and treat others. This is the kind of relationship with God we're supposed to have. We're to look like him. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, a very famous theologian, wrote, the glorified Christ provides the standard at which his people are to aim. The corporate Christ, we together, cannot be content to fall short of the perfection of the personal Christ. You know, I talked this morning about a good turn of phrase. That's a good turn of phrase. Uh, that, that, that's good. The corporate Christ cannot fall short of the perfection of the personal Christ. We are to look like him, which radically redefines spiritual growth 
for the modern church. And we need to talk about that. Spiritual growth cannot be viewed as a personal enterprise. It, is, it must be viewed as a corporate activity. Uh, so this is one of the challenges of the modern church. Um, it's all about you know, your personal relationship with Jesus and your individualized faith and, and you grow in Christ and you do your thing and you go to these things and, and, and you study and, and people's growth is removed from the life of the church. That isn't biblical at all. So our growth what individually is important and necessary, but it is not to be disconnected from the growth of everyone else. It's to happen together. So again, the purpose of your growth is so that other people can grow, so that other people can benefit from your growth. The purpose of your service is so other people benefit from your service, not so that you can be a great servant, but so that others benefit from your service to them. It's all about the, the corporate nature of this, which is enhanced by, uh, again, verse 14, th- this negative side, so that you won't be children anymore. Be a mature man so you won't be a kid. Grow up into maturity. Um, this idea of being a child, spiritually speaking, uh, is used 15 times in the New Testament. Paul is responsible for 11 of those 15. So it's one of, this is something he continues to, to bring up. Um, he, again, don't have a childish understanding. It, it's a metaphor for an ignorance of truth. Adults know more than kids do. So here's, here's the application, I, I guess, for spiritual growth that that Paul could be making here. Again, it's not going to make it into a sermon because we can't say for sure this is what Paul is doing, but it might be what, what Paul is doing. Man, mature man, is singular, referring to our unity together. Children is plural, referring to an ununified group of individuals, which means this. Disunity and individualized spiritual growth is childish. Spiritual growth that comes out of and contributes to the life of the church, that is maturity. That's what it means to grow up in Christ. Individualism, as American as that is, American as apple pie, like that's our thing from a spiritual vantage point, to apply that to your soul is a sign of childishness. It's a sign of your immaturity. Unity together and fighting for that and overcoming the barriers to that, that's actually the sign of maturity. And that maturity brings stability. Uh, Maturity always brings stability, uh, which is why when you get married, you want to marry somebody who's mature. Because if you marry someone who's immature, your life is going to be unstable because they're a train wreck. Um, you, you don't want to join in that madness. You want some stability in your life. That's the whole point. So spiritually speaking, you don't, you don't want this instability of the waves of going back and forth. I don't know what I believe. And now I'm going to believe this. And now I'm sort of dabbling with this cult over here. And now I'm reading the last Oprah book that she recommended. I'm all over the place. You don't want to do that. Settle, grow up, be an adult, settle in. 
This is what it means to be an adult. Pursue uh, the, the full knowledge of the Son of God. Um, Oprah's not going to give you that. Deepak Chopra's not going to give you that. Uh, again, I, I, I could spend the next hour giving you the list of the authors who are not going to give you that. Um, and here's how you know who they are. We don't carry their books on our bookstore. That's how you know. So it's you know, a process of elimination. Um, those are the ones that you can trust, uh, if not the individual book, but at least the author you, you can trust. There are more, absolutely the case. Um, you know, yeah, our bookstore is not the gold standard of theological faithfulness, um, but it's a good start. And we, we did that very much on purpose because you don't want to be carried about by every wind of doctrine because that's the inevitable consequence is you're going to be dizzy and confused is what the word means. You're going to be all over the place. Um, you're not going to be anchored. You're not going to be stable in the one faith, the knowledge of God, the mature man. You're at the mercy of the waves. You're at the mercy of the wind. Um, why would anybody want to do that? And, and I know people who are that way, and so do you. Um, and what it looks like today, which is growing in its popularity is what's known as people are, are now deconstructing their faith. You know, they grew up in the church, and now I, I, I'm deconstructing. I'm, I'm breaking it down in, in the name of rebuilding. It sounds super spiritual. Uh, it's not. We call that apostasy. What that means is I'm walking away from faith. I'm abandoning Christ and truth. That's, that's what that actually is communicating. Um, because they heard some new things and they like them. They heard some new ideas and they don't know the difference of whether it's true or false. They don't know whether it's right or wrong. And because everybody around them is saying it and the cool hip people are saying it, they adopt it. Don't, don't care what cool and hip people say. Um, you know, don't, when I had Twitter, um, which I, is a cesspool and I deleted, uh, I followed a guy who always said, um, don't get your political views from celebrities. Because that's what people do. I'm going to wait until one of the Kardashians tweets on this so I can know what to think. <laughs> All right. Um, people do this spiritually. I'm going to wait until so-and-so speaks on this so I know what to think about it. Somebody's already spoken on this. We, we need to care what he thinks about it uh, because any church leader is capable of going off course. Any church leader is capable of missing something. Go to the text. It's the only trustworthy source. And here's why. So we talk about this, every wind of doctrine, all the false teaching that's out there. I mean, it's absolutely everywhere. That's not accidental. The fact that you can go on any social media platform and everybody will tell you with extreme levels of confidence um, that what they believe is right and true. There's a, a, a purpose behind all of that, which Paul lays out with a series of prepositional phrases. He says this false teaching is by the trickery of men. Verse 14, towards the end of verse 14 by the trickery of men. It's used only here in the New Testament, the word for trickery. Uh, it's a word used outside of the New Testament to refer to dice playing. 
and the inevitable cheating that occurs during it. So this isn't happening by accident. This is happening because people are actively trying to deceive you. Secondly, he says it's by the craftiness. That word's used five times in the New Testament, all of them with implications of evil. And the trickery and the craftiness lead toward deceitful scheming. Scheming is the Greek word methodia. Comes into English as method. So trickery and craftiness and deceit have an agenda. They have a plan. They have a method of getting their false views to you. There is strategy behind false teaching. It is never accidental. Whether that is from evil people using that or Satan using that. Um, There's very real agendas behind these things. So be very careful who you listen to. Be very careful what you allow as a source of authority for you. Verse 15 is the alternative to make sure none of that happens. Speak the truth in love. Again, and this was eye-opening for me uh, to, to come to this part that he's not making a relational principle here. Speak the truth in love. You know, confront that brother or sister and again, tell them they're dumb, but you love them. You know, say, say the hard things, but say them lovingly. You should, all that's true. And he'll talk later in chapter, the end of chapter four about the need for being honest with one another. That's the relational principle. This is a theological one. We speak truth because there's all the false teaching out there that's trying to get into your soul. Therefore, we fight against that as God's people by truthing one another. That's our job, is to truth one another. Now, again, it says speak truth because truthing doesn't make sense in English. Uh, You understand what I mean when you say it, when I say it, but it wouldn't look good in the English Bible. Uh, So they're not going to put the word truthing there. Uh, It's kind of like when George W. Bush would say a Bushism. It's not really a word, but we all know what he meant when he said it. You know, uh, that's what this is. It's not a real word, true thing, but we know what, we know what it means uh, as a concept. We truth one another in opposition to the false teaching. So instead of being children who are tossed at the mercy of the waves, deluded with error, instead from God's people, again, we, we know it's coming from the leaders, verse 11, But from all of God's people, what are we getting from them? We're getting truth. Which means I don't need you to give me cultural commentary on what so-and-so said about anything. Your job is to speak truth to me, which only comes from one source. Speak truth to me. Speak scripture to me, because that is the authority that I need to wash over my soul. That's what I need to wash over my mind and over my heart. We speak the truth in love. In agape is the Greek phrase. Uh, And that phrase, in love, is used more in Ephesians than it is in any other book. So it's one of Paul's themes for Ephesians. Speak the truth, yes, but 
temper that truth with love. Don't water it down. Just make sure it's done from a loving perspective. Uh, John Stott, who's uh, sadly died several years ago, five, six years ago, um, a great, brilliant theologian. He's British, so he's really cool to, to listen to. Um, he, he speaks about this idea of the, the church's failure to speak the truth in love. He writes this. He says, thank God there are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth. But sometimes they are conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch, their muscles ripple, and the light of battle enters their eye. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. You know these people. I know these people. Don't be these people. Speak the truth. Do so in love. Because love without truth is sentimentality. That'll get you nowhere. Truth without love is cold condemnation. That won't get you anywhere. Bring both because we dare not forget, John 1, that our Savior came full of grace and truth. He perfectly balanced both, and so should we. We grow up, he says, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in all aspects. So this, this affects every area of our life. There's nothing that's off limits to the truth. There's nothing that's off limits to God. There shouldn't be anything that's off limits to God's people. We should be able to address anything and everything from this platform and in personal conversation. Everything is on the table here. We grow up into him. What an interesting phrase. We're already in Christ, and now we're to grow up into him. Well, that's weird. How does that work? So the Lord has placed us in him, and as we grow... We, can, we, we begin to fill up who he is, meaning we reflect more of him. So again, think of in Christ as being in this room. Um, maybe view it as, as you have stepped into this you know, figure of who Christ is, and you've stepped, you're, you're now in Christ, but I mean, it's like a little kid wearing their dad's suit. Like it doesn't fit. But over time, they grow up into that. So you're placed in Christ. You're an infant in Christ. You're, you're a baby. You know, the, the clothes aren't going to fit. You're going to read things you're not going to understand. You know, you're going to hear people talk about Bible stuff and theology stuff, and whew, it's going to go right over your head. That's okay. That doesn't mean you abandon that. That doesn't mean you stop reading your Bible because there's a verse you didn't understand. Um, keep Keep reading. Go find a more mature believer and ask them what they think is going on in that text. Get it all figured out because that's the process where we grow up into him, where who he is, what he's done, how he acts, how he speaks, it begins to fit a little bit more than it used to fit. Because when we first start, boys, it's like wearing a dead suit. It's just not, or mom's dress. I don't want to ignore the women in the room. Um, Guys, don't be wearing mom's dress, and girls, don't be wearing dad's suit. Don't, don't do that. That's whole, speaking the truth in love. Don't, do that. don't be dumb. Uh, love you, but don't be dumb. Let's grow up into him to where 
he fits a bit better than he used to fit. And now, uh, 16 again, uh, you know, he's the head of the church, the end of 15. Uh, he, here it means source. At other times it means uh, authority when he uses this concept at the end of chapter 5 and uh, the marriage analogy, which we'll cover in our last week together. Uh, it's talking about authority. It's not talking about source. It's, it's authority. Here it's source because of from whom the whole body. So he, he has done everything to make sure the church has everything that it needs it is joined together. It is held together. In fact, the, the verb for held together in a metaphorical sense uh, was used to refer to a lawyer who brings together all of the evidence to prove their case. They take all of the different pieces, all of the different arguments, and bring them together in one cohesive, unified argument. That's what the church is. We come together, all these varying pieces, in one cohesive, unified group. And how is that done? By what every joint supplies. One of the most debated phrases in the entire New Testament, by what every joint supplies. What in the world does that mean? What is that referring to? It's a weird word. It's not used very often. What does it mean? I think it's simply defined by the next phrase, according to the properly measured working of each individual part. That's what every joint supplies, their work, their service to the church, to God's people. And when I, when I talk about service to God's people, I'm not necessarily talking about holding babies in a nursery, um, though that's critically important. And that, that, that's not secondary. I'm just saying whatever kind of service you provide, whether that is formally on a Sunday morning when the church gathers or any other time during the week when you are serving God's people. All of it's the same. All of it's equal and valuable to the Lord. We need people to hold babies in the nursery. We need more people. In fact, talk to Jody. We need more people to hold babies in the nursery. We need more people to teach kids and, 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 and help make sure nobody dies in the classrooms and all that kind of stuff because kids are dumb. And uh, you know, they, they play with things they're not supposed to if left unsupervised. We need people to help with those kinds of things. Um, but God's people need service beyond Sunday morning. They need the presence and love of God's people every day. So what would that look like? What could that look like? The properly measured working of each individual part. Why is it measured? Because the Lord measured the gift to you. That's why. You can only serve in the capacity the Lord has gifted you. If he hasn't gifted you, don't serve in that area. Easy example. I am not on the worship team. You're welcome. I have never been asked to serve on a worship team. Here's why. I cannot sing. Nor can I play an instrument. I am not gifted musically or vocally. He didn't give me that gift, so guess what? You are not subjected to me with a microphone singing into your ear because we do want people to come back. So, I mean, again, simple example, but if you're not gifted in that area, you don't need to feel obligated to serve in it. That's okay. Wherever the Lord has gifted you, that is where you serve. And however the Lord has gifted you to whatever measure, that's how you deploy that gift. 
And that is good and okay and to be celebrated, no matter what that looks like. That's the the third and final time, by the way, that the word measure is used in the text. He keeps coming back to that, all leading to it's, it's our diversity of how we serve that produces maturity and unity. This is how we get this done. Um, which, you know, if you were to sit and think about, um, all right, we're called to keep the unity of the faith. Rah, rah, how do we ensure that we maintain unity? And, and if, if we brainstorm together to come up with a list of how to do that, independent of the Bible, we would have never added that to the list. Take the gift that you have and serve, and that creates unity. That wouldn't have made the list, but it makes his list. This is how this actually gets produced. Because when the church leaders do what they're supposed to do, bringing God's word to bear, people are equipped and, and they're learning, this is how the Lord has gifted me, and they're, they're learning the full knowledge uh, of the Son of God. They're, they're knowing what they need to know and how, uh, what, what that looks like and applying it to serve to other people. We're growing to maturity. We're, you know, we're, we're not going to be kids anymore, tossed back and forth. We're, we're truthing one another. We're growing up into Christ. We're beginning to look more and more like Him. Each of us are serving however the Lord has gifted us. Last phrase of verse 16, that causes the growth of the body. Here's what I love about Ephesians 4. It's, it's almost as if it's a manual for how to grow a church. Not numerically, that's included though. I mean, it, the end of Ephesians 2, the, the house that we're a part of grows in size. So numerical growth is not a bad thing. It's just not the ultimate thing. But church growth in terms of maturity, looking like Christ, uh, living out what it means to be God's people, this is how it actually happens. So I don't, I don't need to read all of these other resources of you know, secular business practices or you know, all the leadership stuff. Helpful. They have their place. And I, I read them and I have them. This is more important. This is how it actually does get produced. It causes the growth of the body. So we have explicitly in the text, in black and white, if you want your church to grow, this is how you do it. Why would we not implement that? Why would we not strive in every way we possibly could to figure out how to get this done? Because we have a promise from God that will cause the body to grow, whether numerically or in maturity or both. We'll take any of it and all of it because that honors him more for the building up of itself in love. Again, we're, as we build ourselves up, that's not contradicting the fact that all of this comes from the Lord. It's his work. He's the one who's producing all of this because none of this would happen if he wasn't doing it. He created the church. The church wouldn't exist if it wasn't for him. He gifted the church. That's where the text began. It's, he's the source. It's all come from him. Now do something with it. He gave you the gifts, do something with them. This is what Peter is teaching in 2 Peter 1. He says, you've been given everything that you need for life and godliness. Now add to your faith goodness, to goodness, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance. And he lists all, all of these things. That's on you. He's given you everything that you need. Do something with it. Put it together, assemble it. 
Um, th- that's what's going on here. He did everything that you, you could ever possibly need for your own spiritual growth, for your maturity, for the corporate maturity and the unity of the body. He gave it to us. So let's do something with it. Sound good? Okay. Questions? Yes, sir. I'll see you're weaving. Look at you. We're bringing it all the way back. Great question, and very logical. Well done. And I knew somebody was going to weave predestination in there. So, I mean, we, we can't go a Sunday night without, without talking about that at least once. So the question is, what about those who aren't Christians? Does everybody get gifts, or is it just God's people? Who is that that gets the gifts? When we're talking about spiritual gifts, it's only the church. It's only God's people. The, the reason they're called spiritual gifts is they come as a package deal with the Spirit. So when you receive the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit, at conversion, He brings those gifts with Him. So there is what's called common grace by theologians. There, there are pagans who can sing really well. There are pagans who are gifted in phenomenal ways because God is very kind and gracious and generous. For God so loved the world. Right, you know, Jesus said it rains on the just and the unjust. So you know, they, they get crops too. It's not just God's people who are blessing everybody to hell with everybody else. That's not the case. God is kind and loving in a way to everyone. But there's a special kind of love that he has for his people. Again, I, I, I love you. I don't love you like I love my wife. I don't love you like I love my kids. You're in a different category of love than, than them. Um, I... I love you guys. Love you both. Now, Paul, I just said that I love your wife. I don't love your wife like I love my wife, which we're all grateful because you would beat the tar out of me when we were finished. <laughs> it's, it's different, right? So there's a, God loves everybody. There's a different kind of love, a special kind of love that's reserved for his sons and daughters. Part of that is this. So when verse 7 says, but to each one, Grace has been given, referring to these gifts, that's the church. That's his people who have received his spirit, and with the spirit comes spiritual gifts. So, though I made the goofy, you know, lame attempt at humor of, you know, I'm not asked to be on a you know, worship team, uh, singing isn't a spiritual gift, unless it came later, post-conversion. So, it, the, the spiritual gifts we're talking about are gifts that show up at conversion that were not there before which really sets these apart. So when we talk about figuring out what your spiritual gifts is, we're not asking you to take a personality test and things that you're already naturally good at. Those aren't necessarily spiritual gifts. Can the church benefit from those? Yes, you bet. But at conversion, the Lord gave you some specific gifts for some specific purpose. Let me figure out what those are. Um, which really causes the noodle to get cooked regarding spiritual gifts. Um, 
So I am not a naturally gifted communicator. And everyone says amen. Um, it, it, I could point you back to eighth grade speech class. It was not a pleasant experience for me or anyone else in the classroom. Absolutely terrified, scared to death, could hardly get anything out. I, I did a speech on the catcher's equipment because I was a catcher playing baseball growing up. I don't even know what I said. I had all my equipment there. I don't even know what I said about it other than there it is. Later, post-conversion, I discovered that when I get up in front of people, I can talk. That, that wasn't a reality before. So I would put that in the category of a spiritual gift because it came later at conversion. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know what gifts you've always had and which ones came later when you trusted in the Lord. Those are your spiritual gifts. And if you want to try to figure out what those are, the best way to go about it, the easiest way is to take a spiritual gifts inventory. It's like a little test you can take, online test. Just Google it. You can find it. Uh, or talk to John. John has one that he likes the best, and he, he helps lead people through it. The problem with it, though, is it can come across like a personality inventory where you're just answering things that have always been true about you. Um, and that's not going to get you the right answer. So if you take one of those inventories, think about what can I do now that I wasn't able to do before? Um, you know, one, of, one of the interesting spiritual gifts that's listed uh, is helps or service. Like you just like to serve. And you, know, you can look at that and go, how is that a spiritual gift? For crying out loud, anybody can serve. Yeah, but not everybody likes it. So the, uh, the ability to jump in and serve, to assess what the needs are, know how to meet them, volunteer to do it and find ultimate joy in accomplishing that. Yeah, m most people aren't born with that. Most people are born with the opposite of that. You should serve me. I mean, think of every child you've ever known. Because that's how they operate. Because kids are little terrorists. Um, sometimes it, it's a spiritual gift itself that trains and teaches you, I don't know, live your life in response to others. That's a gift that not everybody has. So think, think through it. Uh, it's, it's tough stuff. Try the inventory and see how it goes. Yeah. What else? I, I gave the definitive word tonight on spiritual gifts. That's helpful. Yes, ma'am. Yeah the, yeah, the worship team is just for the recorded people. Yeah, the worship team is not secular entertainment. It's, it's exhorting you. It is building you up. It's encouraging you, um, which, which is good that, that churches embrace that um, because those that try to embrace the entertainment model, we're just a lame imitation of real entertainment. Yeah, I mean, you've seen churches try to pull this off, like a concert on a Sunday morning. Like, if you were going to buy a ticket to a concert, it wouldn't be to church. Like, you're probably going to go to a real one. So that, that's one of the things I giggle at with churches who really try to, like, we're going to entertain you because we're cool and hip and relevant. 
nah, you're not. <laughs> you're just a, you're a lame attempt at, at doing all that. Because really, um, if you just want a good communicator and good music, you've already got good music on your phone uh, or YouTube that or whatever. You can get the world's best music on your phone that's in your pocket right now. You can, you can listen to any TED Talk you'd want to listen to. They're tremendous. And our attempt to try to imitate that is just going to come across as a joke uh, because we're, we're not that, nor are we trying to be that. I once bought a book that said how to preach like a TED Talk. Um, I got about a third of the way through it. And I think I gave it away to somebody. Um, you know, the average TED Talk um, is prepared for for a hundred hours. It takes a hundred hours of preparation to speak for 15 minutes because they're so concise. hundred hours. So to say, you, Mr. Preacher Man, you should preach like a TED Talk, pretty sure that's not going to happen. So, nope. What else? Yes, sir. Ooh, great question. Do our spiritual gifts become more apparent and evident as we grow spiritually? Absolutely the case. Yeah. I, I think it becomes easier to recognize them. Uh, you're more tuned in to the Spirit telling you what they are. Um, you're more knowledgeable of Scripture. You're, you're more thoroughly equipped uh, to serve and you know, this broad thing of a billion different ways you can serve begins to filter down over the process of maturity. Uh, absolutely, that happens. As, as you hang out more with mature believers, uh, you're going to be listening to what they say to you, and they identify for you what some of your gifts are that maybe you never would have seen, but they see. So yeah, it's part of the process of maturity. Absolutely the case. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Oh. So on the opposite end of that, would sin or Satan push your spiritual gift into the opposite direction? Of course he will. And of course your sin will do that. Um, what is the purpose of spiritual gifts? It's for the sake of unity. It's for the sake of serving one another. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 says it's for what is profitable, it's for what's beneficial for everybody. Our wretched heart will turn a spiritual gift for our own vain glory every single day. It will become all about our attention and how I look and what people will think of me. All My heart will do that every single day. And it's a constant battle um, in any role. And then uh, if you are tasked by the Lord to stand on a platform in a spotlight with a microphone, it just pours gas on that fire. Um, th this is one of the constant battles of church leaders. Every church leader I've ever known, this is the battle, the primary battle that they fight uh, to ensure it's not about me, um, to ensure that uh, when I'm done, I'm not wrecked by, boy, what, what, what do people think of that? How, how'd that go? Are they, are they saying nice things about me in the car on the way home? Are they going, wow, he's awesome. 
No, no one's ever said that. But yeah, see, yeah. We, we all know, we all know how it's going. Of course not. But boy, that's what, that's what my sin craves, isn't it? It, it, it craves your attention. It craves your applause. Uh, so any spiritual gift in any way, uh, you know, the, the quiet servant that serves faithfully, that you don't even know who they are because they're serving behind the scenes um, for 30 years, they still struggle with this reality of going, I'm so faithful. I'm more faithful than all these other people. They're just a bunch of hacks. I got this down. And if people really want to know, want to know what servanthood looks like, look no further than me. Everybody struggles with this because sin means I make everything about me. That's all sin is, human pride. It's the signature sin of the human race. We're really good at it. Yeah. What else? You should still serve though. Fight, fight the battle. Truth without love is cold condemnation. Love without truth is sentimentality. Yeah, cold condemnation. Sean, yes, sir. I see that hand. Yes, sir. Yeah. Is there a way to distinguish whether prophecy is revelation or if it's just speaking on behalf of... Um, yeah, I mean, it's not as black and white, as clear-cut as we would like it to be, which is why there's a variety of views on spiritual gifts and the miraculous ones and whether they're still in play or not. Um, I, I would argue in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is speaking about revelation. Um, those who can hear from God and are communicating his word to his people. Not scripture, because it's not done yet, but what God wants to say. Uh, he had those gifted people. It wasn't just the apostles that the Holy Spirit was speaking through. It was others. Uh, in fact, you could you can make the case that the New Testament authors who weren't apostles were prophets. That They're receiving direct revelation from God. Um, I would distinguish that now today. The, the difference between then and now is the fact that we have a completed Bible. That, that's the differentiating factor between now and then. Um, so is there a verse to go to to say these gifts are dead? No, there, there's just not. Which is why it is legitimate when people land on uh, what's called the continuationist view, which is brilliantly named because that just means the miraculous gifts have continued into today. Um, again, so we'll just walk through it real fast. Um, there are four primary views about the miraculous gifts um, on the, to the extremes. Uh, on one side is called the continuationist view. Again, the miraculous gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecy, getting direct revelation from God to communicate miracles, healing, the, 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 again, very miraculous things. There's the hard continuationist view, which is the, the far extreme, which would say life today should be like walking through the pages of the book of Acts. No different. God hasn't changed. Holy Spirit hasn't changed. Same guy. Uh, so just as people were healed by being in the shadow of the apostle Peter when he walked by, that should happen today. 
There are also the same ones who say there are still apostles today with apostolic authority and all that. So that's the, the hard view. The soft continuationist view uh, says, well, absolutely, the, the gifts are still in play. Uh, we call those uh, charismatic with a seatbelt on. Like they're, they're contained. Uh, they're reasonable. Uh, they're, they're not doing this weird stuff like barking in the spirit. And uh, again, it's a thing. Vomiting in the spirit, it's a thing. Uh, again, the, these people are nuts uh, with some stuff they do and then blame on the Holy Spirit to justify it. Um, I, my, my dad's entire side of the family is that. So I grew up attending some of these things. I've seen some things. Um, so when I say nut jobs, I mean it because those people are weird. They have great music though, but man, their people are weird. Um, the soft ones say, well, of course, people speak in tongues. You, you can hear them quietly doing so during a worship service. They're not trying to get a microphone to babble out their you know, prayer language before God. And yeah, there are some healings today and, um, and people do have those gifts. And yeah, if, if the Lord speaks to you and you come and tell me, I'm gonna take that as authoritative and all of that. Then there is the cessationist side, which says the miraculous gifts have ceased. That's why it's called cessationist. Uh, the hard cessationist side says there are no miracles. All of this is complete and utter nonsense. These are all gone. God does not heal. Um, there are no demonic possessions. All this is over. The soft view, and they're super fun. They're not at all boring and legalistic. Uh, the, the soft cessationist view is, of course God heals. God can do whatever he wants to do. And if God wants to heal you, he can. The gift of healing is gone. You can't say, I have the gift of healing, because if you have that, let's go to the hospital for you to walk around to every single room and heal them all. Because if you have that gift, you get to control how it's used. God heals, not you. So the gift itself is gone, but God still does heal people. Um, speaking in tongues. The, the gift is gone, so people babbling their craziness, that's not legitimate. Uh, that's probably the most abused uh, spiritual gift. I would argue because it's the attention-getting one. That's the 1 Corinthians 14 argument from Paul. Uh, again, it's, it's turning it into how awesome I am and, uh, and, and what that looks like to get the attention. Uh, yeah, people can still speak in tongues. God grants that gift. It happens on the mission field all the time because it's an evangelistic gift. It's speaking in known human languages, unknown to the person speaking it, but known to the hearer. It's an evangelistic, it's so that the gospel can go across language barriers. That's the whole, read Acts 2, it's the whole purpose of speaking in tongues. What it is today in the modern charismatic church is an abuse of that gift. So anytime anyone ever says to me, I have the gift of tongues, I tell them, congratulations, you've been called to the mission field. Figure out what language it is, go to a country that speaks it, and share the gospel. That's the whole point. Um, oddly enough, they never do that, and they stop telling me about uh, speaking in tongues. Um, what are some other, you know, yeah, God might give a word, but we should, um, we should really tether that. We should be really careful with that. Um, that, you know, Sean, you're my friend. If you come up and you say, listen, man, I was praying, and God brought you to my mind, I just think he wants me to tell you this. I, I'm going to listen to what you have to say because 
I'm not going to say God can't do that or doesn't do that. Uh, now, it's because you've been careful and you didn't come up and say, God spoke to me this morning and you need to do what I say. You're not being some weirdo about it. I think God might be, here's, here's what I sense the Lord saying. Um, God can speak to me through you, of course. Uh, the number of times that, that church people over the years have come up and said, you know, I, I think the Lord might want you to hear been very helpful and very beneficial. Some of it's been absolutely heretical where I've gone, I don't think the Lord wants me to hear that because that's it's the opposite of what this book says. So we're just going dis- to dismiss that. You know, get thee behind me, Satan. Um, we, we don't do that. So that's the soft cessationist view. Uh, and that's where I land, that the gifts themselves are dead, but God can still accomplish these things through his people. Um, I think that's the most biblical view. I think it's the most in line um, with uh, scripture with reason, with logic of we have an all-sufficient word of God. We ought not be striving for something more or else. We just need to go here. That's not, uh, I mean, charismatics throw out the accusation of you're idolizing the Bible. It's bibliolatry. They even make up words. Uh, it's, it's bibliolatry. Like, no, no, it's not. I would argue that is a more appropriate view of the Holy Spirit than what they have. Because who wrote this book? This is the primary work of the Holy Spirit. Not all this other stuff. This is his primary work. So anytime we honor the scriptures and elevate the scriptures and study the scriptures, we're honoring the Spirit with the work that he's done. The other stuff, that doesn't honor the Spirit. That dishonors the Spirit. Um, Not to mention the fact that... um, the, the Holy Spirit is known for what theologians call his shyness. Um, all he does is point to Christ. He, he never brings the attention to himself. He's always pointing to, to him. The way that you know whether something is a legitimate work of the Holy Spirit is whether people are really talking about Jesus. If all they talk about is the Spirit, it's not a legitimate work of the Spirit. If all they talk about is Christ, that's the legitimate work of the Spirit because that's what he produces in his people, a love and chasing after the Lord Jesus. So I, I hope that helps. Again, I over-answer. I know it, but you know this from the podcast. So this is what I do. Yeah. Anything else before we call it a night? What? To read uh, the next section of Ephesians 4. Read that, uh, four seventeen to the end of the chapter, verse 32. We make a cut there uh, at the end of the chapter. Paul doesn't, uh, but those that made, who inserted the chapter in verse numbers later on, they did. Um, it, it's a reasonable place to cut, but when chapter 5, verse 1 begins with therefore, I mean, they obviously are connected, but we're going to end in the end of verse 32, because otherwise my sermon's going to end up being an hour, which... Nobody wants. Yeah. So Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. Yes, ma'am. If they say of the Spirit. Yeah. If there is nothing but an attention on the Spirit, that's not a work of the Spirit. Yeah. A work of the Spirit is known by the attention that's placed on Jesus. Yeah. Because that's all he does point to him. Yes, sir. Yes or no answer. Perfect. 
apparently. <laughs> Is over answering my gift from the spirit? Well, it's a gift. I'm not sure it's from the spirit. I, I won't blame him for that, but we'll go with it. Yeah, it's my, it's my gift to serve the body of Christ. Aren't you blessed? <laughs> all right, all. Thank you for coming. I appreciate you so very much. Thank you for the questions. Uh, it keeps me on my toes. And uh, we'll do it again next Sunday. Yes, ma'am. Three, three more sermons, two more Sunday nights. November the 6th, we will not meet uh, because John and I have been invited to go and I'm preaching in St. Elmo, uh, where I was right out of college. Yeah. So again, St. Elmo representing. 20 years ago, I preached at a community Thanksgiving service when I preached in St. Elmo, and I've been invited 20 years later to do it again. And John has been invited to come and do the music. So the dynamic duo is going on the road uh, to the booming metropolis of St. Elmo, Illinois. And um, we're just going to, you know, rock it for a while. Yeah, we have next Sunday the 30th and then November the 13th. And boop, done. There have been a few who have asked whether we're going to make this a from now on kind of thing. Yes. Eric, knock it off, man. <laughs> well, if Grace does it, then we should. <laughs> yeah, but MacArthur doesn't always do it. You know, it's other people. Um, so we'll, I, I'll tell you what, I will consider it. Yeah, yeah, well, if Michael's here, that's all we need. You don't even need me. We just look at Michael sitting in the booth. Yeah, uh, so we've had a number of people who have asked that very thing. So um, I'll tell you what, what, what we tell our kids. We'll see. To which they always go, that means no. <laughs> Most of the time it does. Just periodically? Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, if you think it's helpful and beneficial to do this, you preach the sermon on a Sunday, let's talk about that text that night, dig a bit more deeply, then come and tell me that, uh, if that would be particularly helpful uh, for your spiritual growth, for your soul. Uh, we'll talk about why that is and um, whether, that's, whether you're lying to me or not. You know, we'll, we'll figure that out. Oh, I know. I know. So, okay. Bye.